Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Alright, well listen, turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 19. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. It's a familiar story. If you've ever been to Sunday school, you'll know this story. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. It's the story of Zacchaeus. I'm going to read out of the English Standard Version. If that's not the version you have, you can choose to just look up and listen. Okay? Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once. And welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Amen. That's the word of God. That is one of the passages I love and dislike in the Bible at the same time. Because I love the message that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. But I don't like the reminder that short men have issues Any of you ever been to Russia? If you go to St. Petersburg in Russia, I've never been there, but I dream to go there someday. There is this museum called the Hermitage. It is the second largest museum on earth, second only to the Louvre in Paris, France. Just look at it lit up at night. It is a gorgeous, well-appointed museum, and they boast the largest collection of paintings in the world. They have some of the most priceless works of art there. In fact, listen to this. They have so many pieces of art in that museum that if you stood in front of each one for 90 seconds, 90 seconds, it would take you eight and a half years to see the whole collection. That's how much art they have. So even if you lived in St. Petersburg, (laughs) you're not going to see everything there is to see for a very long time. Now what's exciting though is not just the size or the vastness of the collection, But what goes on behind the scenes is perhaps the most interesting thing that takes place at the Hermitage. Because they have a a small army of people who are known as art restorers. And what these people do for a living, they are master painters and they take damaged, faded artwork. And they do everything possible to study the artist, all their body of work. And then after they've done years of study, they tackle a famous piece and they paint over it to restore and bring out the original beauty. I want you to think about the pressure of doing something like this, taking a Rembrandt, an original, and applying new paint over something like that. That's got to freak you out a little bit. 
They use lasers and computers to match colors. They do whatever they can. And when they are done, it's a glorious work that they do. I mean, take a look at that next slide, and you'll see an example of our restorers at work. And you see a damaged canvas up there. And then what what you get when they're finished is vibrant colors. And the dull spots and the white spots and the tears are repaired. And it's truly an amazing thing. Now, when you have a piece of canvas missing, you've got to know by studying the art history what was supposed to be in that missing piece of canvas. And so clearly, art restorers are not just artists. They're students of the original. That's very important. Because when I think about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the redemptive work of God in our lives, I think it's a good metaphor for thinking about who God is to us. His work is that of a master restorer. Only instead of studying the original, he's the one who painted it. And he's doing a marvelous work in our lives of restoring what is distorted and damaged to the original beauty that he had in us when he created us. Now, in all fairness, I've got to give credit. A a lot of the best thoughts in this message came out of a conversation, or rather a series of conversations, I had with my very good friend, Sam Park, who pastors an innovative, exciting new church plant in Manhattan called uh, the Sycamore, in New York City called the Sycamore. And the Sycamore is a very important name to that church, obviously. And I asked him, how did you arrive at the name? And the series of conversations we had so impressed my heart that I developed this, this message that I want to share with you. Now, if you flip to the next, next uh, slide there, that's a sycamore fig tree. It's a gorgeous tree. It gets about 20 meters in height and 20 meters in width, and it is a beautiful tree. It's got broad leaves that rustle in the wind. It produces very tasty, not overpowering fruit. But one of the most interesting things about the sycamore fig tree, and this is not the American sycamore, it's the Egyptian sycamore is that it has been long associated with healing properties. When you cut a branch off of this thing, in a very short time, that branch is regrown. It's a very regenerative kind of tree. And the extracts from this tree are known to heal all kinds of skin ailments. So it's a very healing kind of tree. In fact, even though most most scholars have some disagreement about what the word shikmah really means, you know, actually sycamore is a derivation from the Hebrew word shikmah, That word, according to many scholars, finds its root in the Hebrew word for restoration. Restoration. Isn't that interesting? That this tree is a symbol of healing and restoration. And that's fitting because the story of Zacchaeus is a story of restoration. We're going to explore what that means, that God is a restorer of distorted things, by looking at three questions that the story of Zacchaeus brings out for us, okay? The first question I have is, what kind of people, if you flip to the next slide there, what kind of people does God intend for us to be? Let's imagine for a moment that you are an art restorer at the Hermitage, and you're working on a piece. The real question is, as I restore this thing, what is it supposed to look like in the first place? That's an important question for you and I to ask because we've probably been through enough conversations at Starbucks with friends and family to have a good picture of what we're like right now. But that's not the interesting question. It's an important one, but the more interesting question is, what are we supposed to be like? Now, when you look at Zacchaeus, right away you just get a sense that this guy, there's something wrong with him. People aren't supposed to live 
the way Zacchaeus lived. And I don't mean he's short. I mean, that's not what's wrong with him, okay? Being short is a gift of God. It's glorious. It, it means that you didn't need all the stuff that insecure tall people needed to feel good about themselves. Whatever. Anyway, what was wrong with Zacchaeus was this. It's only used once in the New Testament, and he's called a chief tax collector. Here's what his role was. The people in all the different provinces outside of Rome hated Roman oppression. And more than the military oppression, they hated the financial oppression because Rome would send governors and tax collectors everywhere to tax the living daylights out of people. And and without any representation in Rome, they just gathered money and brought it all to the capital city. They didn't do it through Roman citizens alone, but they would appoint natives, nationals, who would enrich themselves by being the tax collector. So Zacchaeus was a Jew collecting taxes for Rome from the Jews. You're familiar with this idea. But as a chief tax collector, here's the game that he played. And it was well known that he was doing this. Rome would ask for $10 a person. Zacchaeus would collect $12 a person. And he would keep the $2 extra. It was a great scam. He was overtaxing his own countrymen so that he could enrich himself. Everybody who's ever paid their taxes on April 15th, we hate the IRS, don't we? Maybe we don't hate them, but we hate them. Okay? As good Christians, we're not supposed to say we hate anyone, but April 15th, I really resent the government of the United States sometimes. So much in taxes that goes out of your pocket. Who likes the tax man? I'm so sorry if you work for the IRS and you go to this church, but I don't think anyone likes the tax man. And we especially don't like the ones who are skimming a little off the top because it's already hard enough to pay Uncle Sam or Uncle Julius or whoever you're paying. But to pay this jerk to skim his own cut off the top, that there's something wrong with people who can live like that. And if you've ever witnessed this kind of corruption, it's really frustrating to see people who live in ways that people just ought not to live. Have you ever seen a bully? I've been watching the show Jericho. I, I borrowed Pastor Frank's DVD series of Jericho season one. And in town, there's these little punks who just, you got to wonder, why do people have to live like this? Beating people up, stabbing them, intimidating them, stealing what's not theirs. Why are there people in the world who somehow feel like they've got to live in this really nasty, unfriendly, rude kind of way? Every one of us have asked that question, why do such people exist? What is their problem? And when you look at them, when you meet them, you know right away, something's wrong with you because people aren't supposed to be like this. And like I often said in other contexts, if you don't know a person like that, you are probably that person, right? Sorry. You probably are. I was listening to Michael Easley preach this past week, and one of his illustrations, my ears perked up because he was talking about how he used to have a 1971 Oldsmobile 442 muscle car. Flip that next slide and show us. Look at that. Look at that thing. Just get a little emotional. Look at it. Look at it. That is a beautiful car. He used to own one very similar to that. And he said on more than one occasion, he would leave it parked somewhere in the city and he would come out of the store where he was and someone had keyed the entire length of the car. Now, that's pretty frustrating. Any of you ever had your car keyed or maybe spray-painted with What Up Gangster or something like that before? Any, it's happened to me. It's frustrating. And here's the thing that he asked in his sermon that I'm also going to echo. He stood there looking at his gorgeous car with a streak of damage across it. And he says, 
What is wrong with some people? What damage or distortion would have to possess a person that they could see something that beautiful and the only thought in their wicked heart is that I want to damage it? How damaged must a person be inside that they don't feel badly about damaging something like that? You know, I'm kind of anal as it is. I could never key a car like that. But I'm the kind of guy, when there's a fresh snow, I don't even like being the first to step on the sidewalk and ruin the snow. You know what I'm talking about? What has to take place in a person to mess them up so that when they see something beautiful and clean, they want to ruin it? See, this is the heart of Zacchaeus. But it's also the heart of you and me. Why did Zacchaeus end up like this? Why was he so obnoxious? Why is it that no one in town liked this man and he didn't care? Why was he so screwed up? I've got a couple theories. One theory I have has to do with his height. Because it's a common stereotype that short men have something to prove. Okay? Having grown up as kind of a skinny, at least once I used to be skinny, and rather short, I'm all of five foot six today, so it's not exactly a towering, imposing figure. You flip to the next slide. You know, I think it's a stereotype. Stereotype. One before this, please. One before this. Oh, it's in the wrong order. Anyway, having grown up short, I had issues. And I think there was a lot of compensatory behavior for people who are short. My sons, my sons also have some issues because... They're both in the 5th or 10th percentile of height. This is my son Noah, standing next to a gargantuan kid in the same soccer league as him. And this is what he's up against. I mean, that kid is big, but he's not that tall for the age. When you see my son playing, they're like, is he a prodigy? Why is he playing with all these older kids? I'm like, no, he's their age, man. He's a little Zacchaeus, and he's going to have to grow up with some Joe Pesci type issues. You know what I'm talking about? You know, Joe Pesci, he's, he's engaged to Angie Everhart. They might even already be married. I don't know. But he's one of those little dogs who's always tackling big animals. You know what I'm talking about? You see the roles he plays? He's always got a baseball bat in his hands, beating somebody over the head. But he's so tiny. He's like the Pillsbury Doughboy with an Italian accent. Why do guys do that? Because when you're born with what we would call a deficit, you compensate for it. Now, that might not be the only explanation, but his height was, he was short enough that Luke, who's a master storyteller and a recorder of details, saw fit to include that little tidbit in the description. What he's really saying is anyone who's ever met Zacchaeus, that's probably the first thing they would use to describe what this guy is like. He's short, man. I know a lot about this psychology, and I can just imagine. Can't you picture it? Zacchaeus' parents looking at him going, oh, we got problems. This kid's going to have some, he's, he's going to have a real uphill climb in life. So I can picture Zacchaeus' dad pulling him aside and go, listen, son, listen, little Z, come over here. I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to spend your whole life being underestimated and overlooked. Literally overlooked. People are going to bump into you in the marketplace because they don't see you coming. No one's going to give you anything. If you want anything in this world, you're going to have to man up and take it. There's going to be a lot of people who will disrespect you, who will literally look down at you physically and socially, and you're going to have to prove to them that though you're short in stature, you've got a big heart. Get out there and prove to the world that you have nothing less than them. 
You can imagine a father and even a mother repeating words like this to a short little boy. And as a result, this little guy made it big in life. He was arguably one of the richest men in town. He was feared, reviled, but nobody messed with him. You don't cross a guy who can raise your taxes just because he's in a bad mood. You don't mess with somebody who's got the authority of Rome behind him and tons of money at his disposal. But it's not just short men that have issues, is it? You know what I'm doing right now? I'm looking at a whole room full of people. You got issues, man. You all got issues. Some of you, I could look at you a little long, man. You got issues. I got issues. Every last one of us, we have issues. If you didn't have issues, I wouldn't have a job. I'd be selling computers somewhere. Do you understand that? I think we know what brand of computers I'd be selling. We all have issues. Because somewhere along the way, it says in Genesis 1 and 2, that God breathed and imprinted, He deposited His image in us. So that when you look at a human being, you're seeing an echo or reflection of what God looks like. But at the same time, when sin corrupted us, that image got distorted. So that to look at us is not to actually see the fullness of God, It is to see an echo, a distorted reflection of what we should have been. That is what each one of us is until Christ begins the work of restoring and making us whole again. That's why some of us, if you have the guts to ask your friends, they'll tell you, bro, sister, you got some serious issues. That distorted image which sin introduces brings about insecurities in our hearts, don't they? A lot of us are pretty insecure. I've got my own share of insecurities. And it's not just about height. I've got a whole bag of psychological problems. I bet you you guys do too. And when you have insecurities, what do you do? Tell me. You try to fill that insecurity with all kinds of other things. It's pitiful to watch when someone else is doing it. But every last one of us does it in our own way, don't we? Take the baseball bat out of Joe Pesci's hand. Who's afraid of him? Like, come on, Joe, seriously. Just, you know, stand back. Do you realize every last one of us looks like that to others and to God? And it is only when God makes us whole through the acceptance of Jesus Christ that we can begin walking out of our distorted selves, out of those insecurities, into wholeness and acceptance of ourselves and of other people as human beings. You know, you will never feel secure until Jesus has accepted you and that's good enough for you. I know that when you're insecure, you can't believe that. I'm sure telling Zacchaeus that in his 20s wouldn't have gotten through. He said, easy for you to say, you're tall. But I got to do this in order to prove something to the world. Easy for you to say, you have everything. I have nothing. I've got to do this. I've got to get my money. I've got to get my respect. I've got to get my riches and power. Because if I don't get these things, who am I? I am nothing. That motive, that heart drive, explains a lot of lives around here, doesn't it? At some level, it explains my life too. And that's an issue that we've got to face in the presence of God. Zacchaeus is not the only one with compensatory behavior and deep insecurity issues. We all have them. And much of your life and much of my life, 
this real public relations type image you cast out there for people. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you just have to be the athletic person or the sophisticated or the educated. You have carefully cultivated your PR image. And when people misunderstand you, you're quick to correct them. Oh no, that's not me. I'm actually more like this. I do it, you do it. In fact, if we got serious at a coffee shop, I could probably tell you your, your ad agency's treatment of you because you are putting out a commercial about who you are. And along the way, what we're doing a lot of times is putting up masks because we're afraid that if anyone saw the real me, it'd be nothing. And because we don't accept ourselves, we will never be able to accept other people. How do you begin to accept yourself? Well, Zacchaeus found the answer when Jesus approached him on that tree. It is when Jesus said to him, come down from that tree. I want to eat at your house tonight. When he was accepted by Jesus, he began the ability to accept himself. You know what God is trying to restore in us to answer that question, what kind of people ought we to be? Do you remember in Genesis 2 it said at the very end of that chapter that the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. In premarital counseling, that verse always makes the soon-to-be newlyweds kind of giddy with excitement. <laughs> man and wife were naked and they felt no shame. Let me tell you something. It's more than about sex. Man and woman being naked and having no shame speaks of total vulnerability, total honesty, and we're safe in that. What God is trying to restore in us is that we're okay with ourselves because God accepts us in that state and is doing the work of restoring his image in us. What happens in the church most of the time is quite the opposite. We have a cookie-cutter picture of what church Terry and Mary should look like, and we feel insecure because we don't measure up to the other people. You're not supposed to look like the average person at harvest. Your measuring stick is not the average demographic of this congregation. Your measuring stick is who God made you to be and the ability to accept it and let that be the starting point of your life's journey. For whatever thing you see yourself as, there will always be someone in your life who's a little more that thing. Have I, haven't I said this before? There's some woman in this room right now who truly believes in her heart she's the most beautiful woman in this room. And her husband's high-fiving and going, I agree. Okay? Honey, you know who you are. And yet, you know what? If you think you're the most... I'm, she doesn't think that. I think that. I'm not saying she does. If you think you're the smartest guy in this room, I promise you there's someone smarter. And he's talking right now. <laughs> if you think you're the funniest, whatever. Whatever you measure yourself with, I promise you there's someone who's got you beat. Your measuring stick is not the other people here. It is where God puts you. That's the starting point. And then he will begin restoring you to who you are supposed to be. Do you notice that conversion didn't make Zacchaeus any taller? It made him a little poorer, but it didn't make him any taller. Jesus doesn't shore up all your insecurities. He leaves you where you are and says, you're okay. And whatever we can change, we will change over time. But this is who you are. So that begs the second question then. Let's flip to that next slide. What kind of relationships did God intend for us to have with one another? It 
doesn't take a lot of imagination to realize Zacchaeus was probably not the most popular man in Jericho. In fact, wherever he went, people probably to his face said, Oh, hello, Mr. Z. Nice to see you again. And as soon as he turned around, he said, Little midget, like this. And probably made fun of him because everybody hates a guy who steals from his own countrymen to become rich. And the thing about Zacchaeus was, he knew everyone disrespected him behind his back, but he just didn't give a darn. You know the kind of relationship Zacchaeus had with his community? I hate you, and you hate me, and it doesn't matter. I don't care who started this fight, all I know is you don't matter to me, I don't matter to you, and you and I both know that's self-defensive behavior, isn't it? Because everyone wants to love and be loved. And when people start living this way, it's because they're afraid of the truth. And so they're defending their hearts. The truth was Zacchaeus arrived at a place in life where he can live in a community without caring about that community, without loving or respecting that community. And he didn't care that they treated him the same way. It was a homeostasis, a very well-balanced arrangement where everybody hated everybody. Now, I don't know why Zacchaeus became this way, but if I could forward two theories, and kind of psychological theories, one might have been that somewhere along the way as a short little boy, he had a formative experience in his life that made him so scarred that he stopped caring about other people. Some of you may have had an experience like that. An episode in your life where you were so humiliated, so betrayed, so mistreated, that you made a decision in your little heart that day that I don't have to care about anyone ever again. Obviously, no one cares about me, so forget them. What do I owe these people anyway? If they don't love me, I'll never love them, and I'm okay with that. Pain hardens people's hearts. And it may have been that Zacchaeus at some point was so humiliated, knocked on the floor at recess, laughed at by the other kids, tripped up, given a nickname like Twerp or Oompa Loompa or something like that, that he really didn't like. And growing up like that with all that pain and persecution sealed the deal for him. I will never owe these people anything. They are nothing to me. And I am nothing to them. You think Zacchaeus was happy living like that? Of course not. But it worked for him. It was safer, he thought, than caring about people just to get hurt over and over again. Some of you know exactly how that feels. Maybe it wasn't pain, though. Maybe his nastiness came from a whole different place. A lot of people are just nasty because they can't accept their lot in life. It's not that people teased him for being short, but they just can't get over the fact that they they feel they deserve to be taller, and why have they been so shafted like this? Have you ever met anyone like that who just, there's no end to the complaining about their lot in life. They simply cannot accept, why was I born with this body, with this ethnicity, with this gender, with this family of origin? Why am I me? I hate me. I hate the circumstances of my birth and my sorry life and my hate-filled personal history. I just hate being alive. I trade places with anybody in a second. Some people become nasty because they've never been able to accept that even though they didn't have the perfect life story, it's the story that God was writing just for them. So whether it's by pain and persecution or simply the dissatisfaction 
of discontentment. How's that for alliteration? I don't know if it's pain or just discontent. But some people just stop caring about anybody else. And as a result, they behave in ways that are always going to be hurtful and obnoxious to the people around them. But as long as they gain something, they just don't care. Other people simply become the canvas upon which they are working out their own insecurity issues. And if you're living out of your distorted self, if you're insecure and you have not accepted the acceptance of Jesus towards you, you will never enjoy a healthy human relationship. That's a very provocative statement, but I don't back up on that at all. If you have not accepted the acceptance of Jesus Christ, then I guarantee you, you will never enjoy a fully healthy human relationship. Because you cannot interact with other people in a healthy way until you have first had that big hole of insecurity and distortion filled by the love of Jesus Christ. All the money and all the power and all the nice things in the world will not fill up that empty place you're trying to fill up. Do you think Zacchaeus felt on top of the world? He didn't. He had very dysfunctional relationships with his townsfolk. You know, case in point, Jesus looks at him and says, Hey, Zacchaeus, come down from there. And Zacchaeus is amazed by Jesus' warm and friendly tone. And he comes down and it says in the text that he immediately accepted him, welcomed him and said, Jesus, of course you can come to my house. Zacchaeus was happy at the honor that was being given to him. But what immediately happens with the townsfolk is that they see what Jesus is doing and they begin muttering under their breath, that's a big mistake, Jesus. Of all the guys in this town, you picked the worst one to hang out with tonight. This Zacchaeus is a snake and a loser. And if you could have gone to anyone else's house, you would have been better off. Do you see the state of affairs of Zacchaeus' life? Biggest house on the hill. Tons of money, everyone afraid, but everybody hated him, and he hated everybody else. That is not the way life was ever supposed to work. And if you've somehow come to a place where you're settled on that and you're okay with that, you are in great danger of losing everything. That is not the way life was ever supposed to work. But here's the thing. You cannot take away the money and power and influence of a person like Zacchaeus and just tell him, try to be more nice. Try to be more loving. You know, sometimes we do that, don't we? We get everything backwards. We say, stop acting like that. But he can't stop acting like that because that behavior, as hurtful as it is, is the only thing that gives his frame any structure. You take away his money, there's no Zacchaeus left. You take it away, he'll ask you the question, then who am I? You take this, I'm just a short guy. Until Jesus accepts you, you cannot let go of the things that you think make you who you are. If beauty is what makes you who you are, gravity and wrinkles will take over one day and you will come to a point where you forget. You're confused. Who am I now that my beauty has faded and men call me ma'am and stop looking at me a second time? Whatever it is, if it isn't Jesus, it will never be enough. And it will drive you to the most unhealthy kind of relationships with your fellow human beings. 
Let me ask a third question for us this morning. What kind of relationships... Next one. What kind of relationship do you think God intends for us to have with him? You know, because Zacchaeus was a rich man, I bet you the tunic he was wearing was about the equivalent of an Armani suit today. I mean, this guy is not wearing a shabby, dreary linen, terry cloth, whatever. He's wearing something sharp with all kinds of jewel-encrusted hems and all that. And so what a sight this must have been. This little dwarf of a man really dressed to the nines, and he's climbing up a tree like a schoolboy, hanging from a branch, trying to get a gander at Jesus. Now the text very carefully points out that Zacchaeus climbed the tree because he was short and he wanted to get a look at Jesus, but he couldn't because of his height. I'm sure that's the story that Luke was told, but I'm not buying it. Because if anyone could have pushed his way to the front of the line, Zacchaeus clearly could have. Who's going to say, hey, tax man, back up, I was here first. You're not going to do that. If Zacchaeus wanted to the front of the line, he would have gotten there very easily. Why do you think Zacchaeus is climbing a sycamore fig tree? I think here's, here's my theory, and I don't think it's a fanciful theory. I think this has a lot to do with the way this rest of the story plays out. The fig tree in landscape architecture is well regarded because of its broad triangular leaves. It provides excellent cover and shade. In other words, it's the kind of tree you climb when you want to get close, but not too close. When you want to see, but not be seen. Are you hearing me? Why is this guy risking humiliation to climb a tree like a schoolboy, knowing he'll face the derision of his townsfolk? Because he wants to see Jesus, but he doesn't want to be seen by him. Most unrighteous people, most unhealthy people don't need you to remind them they're messed up. They know it. They might get defensive when you challenge them, but I guarantee you, every screwed up person, they know. You might look at them and go, uh, you know, sister, I just want to tell you, I think you have an eating disorder. Or, bro you got a really bad temper. And they might go, no, I don't! The, the truth is, you know what? They know. They're not lying to themselves that much. They know they've got a problem. They just don't want to hear it from you. And most people who have a serious distortion in a hole in their character, they don't want to be reminded. They don't want to be called out. Zacchaeus had heard rumors that this Jesus was an extremely insightful, perceptive, holy man. And the last thing he wanted was a confrontation with this guy. And so he climbs the shadiest tree he could find. And under cover of those leaves, he'll see Jesus, but he will not be seen. At least, that's what he's banking on. Because let's face it, how many of us walking around look up, right? You just look straight ahead. Flip to the next slide, would you? I listen to a lot of stand-up comedy because I have XM radio in my car. And from time to time, I hear these comics who love to do audience participation. And here's how it usually unfolds. Let me do a little role play. Hey there, what's your name? Susie. Hey, Susie. What do you do for a living? She's an admin assistant. Now, let me tell you something. At that point in the comedy sketch, it doesn't matter what Susie says. All you know is from that point on for the next 10 minutes, Susie and her career are going to be the butt of every joke. Susie probably regrets two seconds into that that she sat in the front row at the comedy club. There's this thing where you want to get close enough to see, but you definitely don't want the spotlight shining on you. And it's kind of an uncomfortable thing. I squirm in my car when I hear those bits. Because you can tell, even over the radio, those people want this guy to shut up and move on. Bro, just 
move on. And he won't let go. Like a, a, a lion holding on to the jugular of some animals. Come on, tell me, what do you do? Come on, tell me. And he ridicules and he wails on them. He roasts them. That's probably the feeling Zacchaeus had times a thousand. When he's hiding in his little safe vantage point, staring down at Jesus on the street. You know this feeling? And all of a sudden Jesus stops and he goes, Hey! Short man in the tree. And think about this. He doesn't call him short man in the tree. He calls him Zacchaeus. How frightening would that be? How do you know my name? And he says, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree, man. Because I have to eat at your house tonight. Now, Jesus is a smart guy. The richest man in town probably has some good grub. But I don't think that's why he had to eat at that guy's house. He's saying, of all the people in this town, there's no other home I want to sit at for a while than yours. You need to come down from that tree. Can you imagine the shock? And listen, the crowds lying in the street, you know why they're out there for this little parade? Not because they think Jesus is going to save their souls. Because they think Jesus is going to kick Rome's butt and restore Israel to the former glory it enjoyed under David and Solomon. That's what they thought Jesus was going to do. Jesus was a symbol of hope that everything they hated about Rome would now be yesterday's news and Israel would dominate again. That was their hope. That's why they were lying in the streets. So you can imagine now when Jesus stops and he points at Zacchaeus, the crowd smells blood in the water. What they're thinking to themselves is, yeah, Lord, you got the right guy now. Let's make a public lesson out of the twerp. He represents everything that is wrong about Roman rule, and you're going to end this for us, aren't you? Just tear into him, Lord. That's what they were hoping, and I'm sure that's exactly what Zacchaeus was thinking. Oh, Lord, here's the Messiah of Israel. I'm busted because I'm a tax man for Rome. He's going to kill me. You know what happens instead? Think about Zacchaeus' heart thumping like this, and Jesus looks at him, and the tone is warm and friendly. He says, Zacchaeus, I really would like to come over and eat dinner at your house. Now, in Western culture, that's a really rude imposition. I mean, how many people just go, hey, I'd like to come to your house for dinner tonight. That, how would that be? That, that's really rude for us. But in that day, when you're the guest of honor, that is a wonderful thing he's doing for Zacchaeus. He's making Zacchaeus the most honored man in town that day. Now, the other people in town didn't like this, but Jesus sacrificed his credibility and popularity with the crowds in order to welcome home someone who is very far away from him. And if you could picture this scene, here is this guilty man hanging from a tree to get closer to God. And Jesus looks at Zacchaeus and says, come down from that tree, because Zacchaeus, in a very short while, I'm going to climb up a tree And I'm going to be the one hanging on that tree to take your place. It's not you hanging from trees that gets you closer to me. It's when I hang from that tree that the the gap between us will be closed and you and I can be friends again. Do you see the power of that image? Just a week before Jesus hangs on the cross, he calls a guilty man off the tree and he eats in his house and salvation comes. What kind of relationship do you think God intends for us to have with him. Well, it isn't one of making extraordinary efforts to claw our way closer to God. It is one of acknowledging that while we in our insecure hearts want to get close but not too close to God, want to see but not be seen by God, 
He looks at us and knows our name and says, I want to get closer to you than you ever imagined you could get. And I'm the one who's going to do the hard work of making that possible. It is Jesus who accepted Zacchaeus and not the other way around. You know, we have this funny terminology. Have you accepted Jesus as Savior? Well, that doesn't make much difference unless first Jesus has accepted you as his child. And I'm going to tell you right now, that's the important part of every one of our stories. Hang from every tree you wish, but you will never get closer to God than when he invites you in and accepts you home. So what kind of relationship are we supposed to have with God? It's not a religious relationship where we're striving to be the best churchgoer that we could possibly be. Now, I'm not going to fight you if you want to work diligently in the ministry here. I would, in fact, like to see that. But not because you're clawing your way towards God, but because you realize you're already home with him. He accepts you right now in this very state, as screwed up as we might be. He accepts us in Jesus Christ. You notice it's only after Jesus accepts Zacchaeus that Zacchaeus says, Lord, I'm going to give away half my possessions to the poor. You know, Zacchaeus was short, but he wasn't deaf. When he came down from the tree and and warmly embraced Jesus and he heard the townsfolk muttering under their breath, do you think that escaped his notice? And it was as if Jesus piercingly stares at Zacchaeus and he says, Zacchaeus, I hear these townsfolk saying that you're nothing more than a sinner. Is that true? Is that all that you are is a sinner? Is that all you're ever going to be is just a sinner? The jerk who rapes your own people financially? Or are you something more than that now? It is only after the hole in his heart is plugged by the loving acceptance of Christ that Zacchaeus is finally able to say, no, Lord, I'm more than that because you made me more than that. Before you, I could never let go of this money. The words I'm about to speak would have been impossible 30 minutes ago. But now, because I've seen your face and received your love, I can say for the first time in my life, I give away half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anyone, I will pay back four times what I stole from them. This is what Jesus does when he meets you. He makes what is presently impossible for you to accept something that you now have the capacity to do and to say. You know what I call that? I call that conversion. I call that restoration. You know, we speak of conversion in America like it's the flipping of a switch. One day I was going to hell, now I'm going to heaven. I got converted. I just flipped the switch. It was a zero, now it's a one. Isn't that a silly way of thinking about conversion? It's not just where you will spend eternity. Conversion, it's more like a conversion van. It was just a van, now it's a house on wheels. Now it's a mobile party. It is taking something and changing it into something else. That is conversion. Never think of the saving work of God as a flipping of some future switch. That isn't what it is at all. Conversion, redemption, restoration is all about this work of God changing us. Let me end this way. You know, we criticize the disciples a lot for missing the point and thinking that Jesus was going to be a worldly kingdom builder. We, we, 
really looked down on them because they thought he was going to give them seats in government and all of that. But you know the thing is, they were only partly wrong. Do you understand that? They were only partly wrong. Jesus was coming to establish a kingdom on this earth. Yes, it is a heavenly kingdom, but he was also coming to establish an earthly one. But he wasn't going to do it by being president of a new country or king of a new nation. He was going to bring a revolution, not by changing the world himself, but by changing lost people who needed to be restored to the lost and distorted image of God in them. He was going to change the world by changing us so that immediately after being changed ourselves, we would start to affect our world very differently than we used to. No one who has not known the acceptance of Christ can ever do anything truly unselfish. You can go and follow Mrs. in my missions, but if you're not accepted by Christ and believe that, you're just going to be a laborer, but nothing in your heart will be pure, will it? But when you are truly converted, everything you touch becomes a process of restoration and true conversion. This is the story of God in our lives. And would you flip ahead to two slides? One more. And this is the question I'd like to leave on your heart as we wrap up this morning. Is God restoring you? If you could be portrayed as a work of painting on canvas, how does that painting look today? Are the colors faded and dull? Are there big scratches and missing patches in that piece? And if so, is Jesus doing that work of restoring you to what you should have been and still can be? I think it's a marvelous picture that the work of God's kingdom is that as he changes us, immediately it will have a ripple effect on the people and the world around us. There's a lot of happy citizens in Jericho the day Zacchaeus got saved. Do you realize that one man's conversion stimulated an entire local economy? How many of you got your tax payment back from the government? This stimulus package. I love stimulus. I love it very much. I like it a lot. How many of you guys got at least a thousand from it? Did that stimulate you? I hope you used it to put right back in the economy like you're supposed to do. I know I did. I did my part as a citizen. And I went on vacation to Wisconsin. You know, one man's conversion has a ripple effect across an entire city. As thousands of people groaning under the weight of overtaxation suddenly find a little change in their purses again. Is that just spiritual? Or is that a real world, a real kingdom on this planet in fabric of time and space? And I tell you, there is no kingdom of God if it rests and lives only in our souls and in our private hearts and our devotional lives. Then there is no kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a kingdom that begins in the soul and spills over into the world around us. And only then will we see this thing called the kingdom of God. Amen. May this be the vision of transformation and conversion you hold in your heart every time you hear the gospel and every time you hear the word salvation. Salvation is the coming of the kingdom of God on this earth and beyond.
Amen. Let's bow for prayer together. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.